On his way there, he had to go through Samaria. In Samaria, he came to a town named Sychar, which was not far from the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by the trip, sat down by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw some water. Give me a drink of water. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. So how can you ask me for a drink? Jews will not use the same cups and bowls that Samaritans use. If you only knew what God gives, and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would ask him. And he would give you a life-giving water. Sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get that life-giving water? It was our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well. He and his children and his flocks all drank from it. You don't claim to be greater than Jacob, do you? Those who drink this water will get thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring which will provide them with life-giving water and give them eternal life. Sir, give me that water. Then I will never be thirsty again. Nor will I have to come here to draw water. Go and call your husband and come back. I don't have a husband. You are right when you say you don't have a husband. You've been married to five men, and the man you live with now is not really your husband. You have told me the truth. You are a prophet, sir. My Samaritan ancestors worshipped God on this mountain. But you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we should worship God. Believe me, woman. The time will come when people will not worship the Father either on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans do not really know whom you worship. But we Jews know whom we worship because it is from the Jews that salvation comes. But the time is coming and is already here, when by the power of God's Spirit, people will worship the Father as he really is, offering him the true worship that he wants. God is Spirit, and only by the power of his Spirit can people worship him as he really is. I know that the Messiah will come. Well, good morning. Yeah, it's a wonderful morning. We've had a wonderful beginning. This is John chapter 4 that we're looking at this morning, and we're in a series uh, on the Gospel of John. Uh, I was in Dubai a number of years ago in the uh, month of July, not the best time to go to Dubai. When I stepped off the plane, it was midnight, and the staircase was uh, rolled up to the massive plane and we deplaned, and even at midnight, just stepping out of the plane uh, onto the stairway, a massive heat wall just hit us instantly. Uh, 
We were in the desert. We were in the desert. In the days to follow, I experienced heat such as never before. The thermometer registered over 50 degrees Celsius almost every day. Walking out of the hotel into the hot air, my glasses would fog up just instantly. This is life in the Middle East for many, especially in the desert. This was the kind of world a certain man stepped into 3,000 years before. A man began to search for water in a dry and barren land. He had a family to provide for. He had servants to provide for. He had livestock to provide for. I don't know where he knew to begin digging. But he put his spade into the crusty soil where he and his family were etching out a living. The backbreaking work became harder still as his pick hit the strata of limestone that sits just below the topsoil in this unforgiving land. The sun was hot. The dry, dusty air burned in his throat and his lungs. Nevertheless, the man continued working day after day, digging deeper and deeper, sending bucket after bucket of stone fragments up to the surface. Months later, at a depth of more than a 100 feet, the man finally struck what he was looking for. Up from the cracks in the limestone came bubbling a cold, clear liquid. And from the depths of the pit, the man cried up to those who were at the top, We found it! We found it! Water! What could you possibly want more than water when the sun is scorching and the temperature is soaring at 40 degrees, 50 degrees Celsius? Water! Just give me some water! Who was this man? His name, of course, is Jacob. And the well he dug has been referred to throughout history as Jacob's well. It's very deep. Some of you have been there. Some of you have seen the famous Jacob's well. But out of that well has flowed life. Life-giving water to the residents for many, many centuries. This has been such a gift to the thousands of people who live in that surrounding. There's an underground stream that Jacob dug down to, nearly 100 feet down. Quite a challenge 3,000 years ago to dig a hole 100 feet down and not have it all cave in on you. We're in John chapter 4, as I said. It was at this very well that Jacob dug 3,000 years before that Jesus comes. And he's tired from after a long day's travel. If it's 40 degrees out, we know why he's tired. Verse 4 says he had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? So let me give you a couple of hooks to, to hang our thoughts on this morning. Number one, breaking down walls. First of all, I have to say how impressive it is to see how Jesus relates to people from every walk of life. 
from his interview in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, reaching to the very educated, sophisticated level of religious society. And in the next chapter, in chapter 4, reaching to a woman, a Samaritan woman, and creating a pathway to her heart. We have so much to learn just from his bridge-building skills. He can speak to the gamut of people, and we will see that again and again as he does that. I'm intrigued with the words in the New Living Translation, he had to go through Samaria on the way. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Uh, So I checked it out in the New English Translation, and it says, but he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. There is a world of meaning in that phrase. The Jews never passed through Samaria. They always walked around it. To put this in contemporary context, this is the West Bank today. And with the words West Bank, we all get it. The issue that is still so heart and center of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict goes back a long, long ways. When Menachem Begin was the prime minister, was back, was it in the 60s? He used to call this land by its proper title, Samaria. Now, we don't use that term any longer. The Holy Land is a divided land. So when the Jewish people wanted to go to Galilee in the north, they walked around this part of the country. They walked nearly twice the distance to get to Galilee because it was beneath their dignity to walk through Samaria. Yet these words are packed. He needed to go through Samaria. He had his father's heart, you see. And his father's heart was for the whole world. Not just that some would hear the life-changing transformational message, but that all would hear, even the Samaritans. Who are the Samaritans? Well, back in the days of the Babylonian captivity and the Assyrian wars, these countries settled some of their people in the land of Israel. They were called colonists. They were from Assyria. They were from Babylonia. And they intermarried with the Jewish people. And that created a huge barrier. These people were no longer the true Jewish people of the faith. They had intermarried. And it was taboo. So Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? To address the issue of reconciliation. Some of you know the name Dr. E.V. Hill. Wonderful man. Uh, we had one of our, uh, as one of our speakers at a triennial conference many years ago. But he tells the story. He's been the pastor. Uh, he's, he's passed on now. But he was the pastor in the Watts area of Los Angeles. And he tells the story when he was a student and was chosen to travel to a conference in Nashville. It meant that he would have to travel across the southern United States. And in those days, that was dangerous. That was the 50s. The trip through the south was by car, three whites and two blacks traveling together. He said, I had no idea how we would eat, how we would sleep, and my anxiety over this trip was so great that I just nearly pulled the pin at the last moment. 
He said, in all my experience, I never had seen a white man stand up for a black man and never felt that I ever would. But then Dr. Howard, the director of our trip, and a white man spoke up. He said, we'll be traveling together. If there isn't a place for all of us where all of us can eat, then none of us will eat. And if there isn't a place where all of us can sleep, then none of us will sleep. That was all he said. But it was enough. For the first time in my life, he said, I I met a white man who was a Christian, Christian enough to take a stand with a Christian black man. He needed to go through Samaria. It is noon. The sun is hot. He comes to Sychar, the location of Jacob's well. And he finds the local watering hole, the only restaurant in town, the place where people tend to gather, but never at high noon. He's tired. John says it so simply. He's tired. He had no need to make a case for the humanity of Jesus. I mean, we know the feeling. Have you ever gone home after an exhausting day at work and dropped wearily into your nearest easy chair? Have you ever at the end of a busy day with the kids after getting them tucked in and lowered yourself finally into your soft recliner and kind of looked back at the day and said, oh, made it, got through. John wants us to know that along with his deity, he's also human that he gets tired like the rest of us. I mean, that's why our salvation is so precious. We give our lives to a real Savior. He's really one of us. He's come among us. And he thoroughly understands us and identifies with us in in this life. But watch him break down the walls. A Samaritan woman comes to draw water. Remember, it's noon. He says, please give me a drink. Now, later this will become more significant. But let me just open the window just a crack. This woman is here at high noon. Why? Because it's easier on her, given her past, not to have to endure all the gossip at the water cooler. You don't have that in your business office, do you? At school? Amazing the things that are talked about at the water cooler. And sometimes people say, I hate those little breaks in the lunchroom because things go south real fast. And it's just uncomfortable sitting in that conversation. And this woman always chose to come at noon because who would draw water at noon? She had used all her chips in the basket of society and she was pretty much on her own. She had a past. The timing of Jesus to connect with this woman is remarkable. I mean, can anything impactful come at a water cooler? At an old well? It's kind of like saying, can anything profound or amazing happen when we're shopping in Safeway or Sobeys? I mean, we're in a hurry, trying to pick up a few things for supper or for the kids' lunch tomorrow. We're exhausted and suddenly we're engaged in this conversation. 
And it's so timely, so on target, and, and it's so right to the heart, and we find ourselves in a dialogue with somebody else. And we see how the wind of the Spirit is blowing, and our eyes are open. It's just like remarkable, the timing. And we feel the wind of the aisle of the, of the meat section. It can happen anywhere. It can happen anywhere. How very beautifully Jesus leaps over the barriers that separated him from this woman. He was a woman. He, he was a rabbi, and rabbinical law said never talk to a woman in public. They actually said it was better to burn the law than to give it to a woman. He needed to go through Samaria. He had to tear this wall down, this awful prejudice against women. He makes a simple, unexpected request of her. Could I have a drink, please? That was the beginning of a remarkable breakthrough. And I have to say, it didn't come about as a result of a global conference on cross-cultural evangelism with a particular theology of reaching Samaritans. Let's study this issue. No, he simply expresses a basic need. I'm thirsty. And with that, he was opening the door to connecting with this woman's heart and soul. Now, she is a little crusty. She has a past. But what a, what a question, simple and friendly. And you'll see in a minute how she respectfully calls him sir. Amazing progress in just minutes. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Mark and I are the parents of three girls, three daughters. I used to say, I used to say, I am the dean of women in our home. I don't say that anymore. But for anyone to devalue them because they are women cuts deep to the heart. You understand that. In general, our world has been so unfair to women through the years, so ungracious to them, saying, you can't serve her. You can't do that. You can't. Corporate world, church. I'm so glad things have changed. You might argue, well, not nearly enough, but, but things have changed. We're sorry where we've not been fair, where we have not been equitable. We're sorry when through the years we've put up barriers to serving in the church. I'm so grateful for this church. I can't tell you how much. For simply a strong invitation to serve in this church, wherever God has gifted you. You're welcome to serve. And I understand that we try to interpret the Scriptures as honestly as we can in these areas, that there are differences of understanding. They have been the topic of great discussion through the last three decades or more. My own sense that if we're not perfectly clear, I would sooner err on the side of generosity and openness because women are making a huge contribution to the life of Christ in his body, the church. So I say, use your gifts to his glory. But look around the world today. Globally, 5,000 women and girls are murdered every year in so-called honor killings. 5,000. Every year, millions of girls in the developing world, one in about seven, 
are forced into marriage before the age of 15, a situation in which incidents of violence are high and sexual initiation is accompanied by force and fear and pain. I mean, all of this violence against women and girls in the developing world, all the wife beatings, the dowry murders, honor killings, the acid burnings, the coercive child marriages, and the genital mutilation is, is against the law in nearly all of these countries where it occurs. But these laws, however, are simply not enforced. And it becomes open season against women and girls. Just this week in the journal, the information came to us that the Islamic State boasted that it had enslaved women from an Iraqi minority group. I just can't call the name of that group right now. In order to use them as concubines. They're boasting about that. Jesus changes it all. He had to go through Samaria. He had to speak to this issue. And what a difference he's made. The Apostle Paul made it clear there is no longer Jew or Gentile or slave or free or male and female for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And not only was she valued as a woman, she was valued as a Samaritan. Such an important reminder to us to value people of every culture, of every tribe, of every nation, of every background. In Canada, we pull down the barriers that have separated us from the First Nations people. A new consensus emerged in the early 21st century that the residential schools did significant harm to the Aboriginal children who attended by removing them from their families, depriving them of their ancestral languages, sterilization, and exposing many of them to physical and sexual abuse by staff and other students. And finally, this consensus was symbolized by Prime Minister Stephen Harper, June 11, 2008, on behalf of the government of Canada. It was an important step. It was a step toward pulling down the barriers that have been built between through these years. And it starts with a humble recognition of our past and our pride. And it is saying with Jesus, can you give me a drink of water, please? I reach out my hand to you. Do you know, really, one of the greatest joys in being part of this church? It thrills my heart. The fact that God has brought so many here from different ethnic, cultural backgrounds. I love it. I love it that we are the United Nations. And we are so much richer because of it. So first, breaking down the walls. Secondly, building intrigue. Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you, you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and the well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. 
But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Jesus knew exactly how to connect with Nicodemus, and he knows exactly how to connect with this woman. What an astonishing reversal of roles. The one who is the giver of life that makes you thirst no more is the one asking for water. He comes in weakness. He comes in the unique manner that, 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 he, that he brings to the situation. And he establishes a dialogue. I don't Do you see it? Do you, do you see the mileage you get when you become a servant? Do you know when you admit a need and you invite someone else to meet that need, that in so doing, some of the greatest needs around us are met? Intriguing. Jesus is a master of intrigue. The woman says, living water? You could, you could give me living water? You don't even have a rope. You don't have a bucket. How does that work? Hey, man, you're, you're missing a bucket. Not to be sidetracked, he just continues on. Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. Jesus is using what, is, what some call double-level language. He was using a physical reality like water to bring this woman to a spiritual understanding. And he's always so effective in doing that. Water has always meant life. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. So the teaching here is life. Life for men and life for women who are dying of thirst. Jesus will, John will tell of Jesus in John 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke concerning the Spirit. And this is the invitation that the Samaritan woman is, is hearing. You can have your life filled and overflowing with living water, the Holy Spirit. I would give you living water. I would give you living water. Oh, what he wants her to hear is this, dear one, Dear one, I, what I'm asking for is simply a chance to give you what you're really looking for. I know you're thirsty. Thirsty for something you won't find in this well. And after a little resistance on the depth of the well and the history of the well and the importance of Jacob and all those things that she goes through, then her heart softens a little bit when he says that he can meet the deepest needs in her life. And he can fill her up to overflowing with the eternal source of life. And for a moment, she starts to open up and she says, I'd like that. I'd like that. I won't ever have to come here to get water. But what she means is, it's painful to come here. I won't have to come here where I get reminded of my past. And people just won't let me forget. She says she'd like the water. Sir, please give me the water. But there's one more step, and 
Jesus knows that there is something hindering her. She is still not free from her sin. And the Savior looks into her heart and he knows, he knows what it is. And he looks into our hearts and he knows. He knows what is there. Go get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Everything that has taken place between Jesus and this woman has been a preparation for this delicate moment, for this finest of scalpels to make an incision. He tells her, I, I know. You've had five husbands. And you aren't married to the man you're living with now. He's not making fun of her. He's not putting her down. He's helping her to come to grips with the brokenness of her past. And if she can do that, if she can admit her need and her sin, she can be healed. She can be healed. She can have a restart. And don't we all need that? Start over. Start over. Jesus knew that somehow he must gently lead her to face the thing that was destroying her. So gently, plainly, forthrightly, but without condemnation, he led her to see what was wrong. The gospel, the good news, has two levels to it. One is repentance, and the second is belief. Until we admit our need, there is no way to open the door to God, for God to come in and act and to do His work. We come in our brokenness, in admission of our brokenness and our past and our sin and our failure, and we say, I messed up. I repent, which means to turn around and now go in the direction of God. Lord, take the steering wheel of my life. And Jesus knows she must come to that point. She must come there. It's awkward, but it's crucial for healing. And his words are critical for every age, for every heart, regardless of the extent of our past, for Paul says, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's quite a story. The woman doesn't evade the subject, as some suggest in reading this text. I just think she admits that Jesus is right on target in her life. And later she goes into the village and she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. That's huge. That's the admission of her need right there. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. If the truth is told, we all have regrets in life. We have baggage in life. We have our share of pain and failure and sin and hurt. And Jesus wants to take care of all of those things. Attitude, falling short, whatever. And he wants to heal us and restore us and give us the Spirit of God, the Spirit who refreshes us day by day by day. Perhaps like the woman at the well, you've been gossiped about, 
Maybe you've been the topic of conversation around the water cooler. Maybe you face discrimination, gender, racial, educational, career, whatever it might be. Maybe you work with someone who's very difficult, but if you drill down, you find that there is a past. And they're trying to get their past under the grace of God. But God in his love comes to us and he reminds us that he loves us. And he has such good gifts for us, especially the gifts of grace and forgiveness. Also the gift of the Holy Spirit, living water. Friends, this morning, if you hear his voice, his gentle calling in your heart, don't reject his voice, but admit your need. Humbly reach out to your heart to say, I want the living water. Please, sir, give me that water. And if you have questions, if you want prayer, slip up here following the close of the service, and we would be so happy to pray together. Would you stand with me, please? Let's bow together. Maybe this morning you're saying with the Samaritan woman, give me this water, give me this water. Jesus looks at you and he sees your heart and he knows your heart. You can be totally honest with him. Lord, we invite you this morning to take control of our hearts. I, Lord, I need you in my life. Lord, I need you in my life. I want the living water to flow in me. And I desire that out of my life will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus, forgive my sin. I trust my life to you. I trust my life to you. My heart is to always, always follow you in the name of Jesus. Lord, do your work this morning. Amen.